Welcome to another episode of the Open Doors Live podcast with your hosts, Mike Gore, James Casina, and Jocelyn Gotto. For more information, head over to opendoors.org.au or opendoors.org.nz. Here's today's episode. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Open Doors Live podcast. My name is Jocelyn Gotto and today I am your only host. We have a very special reason for that. Uh, we are joined here in the studio by one of our field communicators for the Sub-Saharan Africa region. But before we introduce her, um, I just wanted to take a moment to thank you so much for listening again to this podcast. We are so grateful for each and every one of you who um, tune in each month um, and we would love if you could rate, review, subscribe and share this podcast and we want to get it out as far and wide as we can. So we're so grateful for you and thank you so much um, for all of your support for this podcast and for Open Doors as a ministry. So as I mentioned, we have a special guest joining us, Joe. So nice to have you in the studio with us. Thank you, Jocelyn. Good to be here. I was wondering if you could just maybe introduce yourself a little bit and tell us a bit more about what you do for Open Doors. So I am the head of communications for field work in sub-Saharan Africa. Basically, we are the channel of communications from what happens in the field to the wider world. I love your accent. Where Are you from South Africa? Yes. Awesome. And so now you live in Adelaide. How long have you been here for? We've been here about six years. And how long have you been with Open Doors as a ministry? Well, on and off, um, about 20 years. Okay. Wow. It's a lot of change happens in 20 years time. I'm sure you've Absolutely. seen a lot of stuff. <laughs> and how did you come to work for Open Doors? So after uni, I had the opportunity to work with Open Doors. It the Lord just presented this opportunity and I, I grabbed it and learned a lot in the process. And there was a time when I stepped away from it a little bit and then it felt really empty and I felt really poorer for it. And the first opportunity I had to come back, I, I took it. And yeah, that's that's a long time ago. So yeah, so I've been working ever since and it's it's been such a privilege. Wow. So today we'll focus um, obviously a lot more on Africa um, and focus on persecution that is happening on that continent. Um, maybe you could explain to us what are the main drivers of persecution in Africa um, and how this varies across the different countries that you look after. Right, so we have a lot of, um, it's, it's a very complex landscape, let me just say that, and there's more than one thing that, that causes trouble for the church. In some areas we have a lot of extremism, so this could be extremism teaching, it could be people you know who turn into terrorists that attack the church, and then we also have governments that are hostile to the church um, in places like Sudan and Eritrea. Um, and we, then we also have tribal systems um, that cause trouble for the church. So it's quite varied. Um, for instance, if we, have, if we think about extremism, this is very much on the public sphere um, where Christians are exposed to attacks, um, dis displacement, um, you know, destruction of property. So there's a lot of trauma involved in that. And then when you look at the governments, you know, the hostile governments, that is like all spheres of, of Christian life is affected by that. Like you can't go to church openly. Um, you cannot evangelize. Um, also, even on society level, you've, you face a lot of discrimination. And then also with the tribal systems, it's the same thing. It's on the social sphere, on the family family sphere where you're affected most of all, like you're excluded from societies. So it really is a mixed bag of, of trouble in the different areas. And would you say that persecution has increased in Africa in recent years or has it been something that's been kind of consistent for 
decades. Well, there is worldwide an extremist wave going, and, and Africa has really been affected by that. And I think there has definitely been growth. Um, there's also, you know, with the tribal systems, there's a lot of people who have been advocating for, for Africans to return to their roots. So persecution has really increased in that regard as well. So there's definitely an increase in persecution. Um, the church is under a lot of pressure in Africa. Okay, so you mentioned that there are many different um, forms of persecution throughout Africa, but I think one of the biggest things that we focus on in the West or that we know of in the West is Islamic extremism. Can you talk to us a little bit about what Islamic extremism looks like in Africa? Yeah, there's, there's pockets of extremism across Africa. For instance, in northern Nigeria, I think a lot of people would have heard about Boko Haram. So this looks, you know, it, it's affecting that whole area. Um, it's not only in northern Nigeria, it's also spread now to northern Cameroon. Um, churches in the south of Chad have experienced attacks, even in south of um, Niger, there's been some attacks. But then also, if you move across to the east, there are pockets of extremism there. Maybe people would have heard about Al-Shabaab, that, you know, that's a group that's very active in Somalia and northeast Kenya. But then there's also a group called the Allied Democratic Forces that are active in the Democratic Republic of the Congo. And even though it's a very small area and it's um, it's much more isolated and it's, a, it's on a much smaller scale than a group like Boko Haram or Al-Shabaab, there is evidence that this group is trying to uplift and uproot um, Christian communities in that area so that they can have a caliphate there and from there spread even into northern Tanzania. So we're really concerned about those movements happening as well. So it really is um, not only, you know, in West Africa, it also affects East Africa to a large degree. So in the West, we've heard a lot um, or different bits and pieces about groups like Boko Haram and Al-Shabaab. Can you tell us a little bit about the Fulani herdsmen? They've kind of started to come into the media a little bit, but who are they and what is their ideology? Right, so this is a very complex issue as well. It sounds Sorry. like everything I'm saying. No, it's, it just sounds like everything I'm saying is complex. But I think it's really important to understand that we, you know, we always find, or try to find the simplest narrative to explain a problem. But the Fulani um, crisis is something that's really complex. The Fulani are a people group that are spread across West Africa. They're nomads. You know, they move around with their cattle um, across several countries in in. Um, in West Africa. And in many of those places, they do so without the kind of effect that we've seen in Nigeria. And that have, you know, you have to ask yourself, why is that? And it is definitely the way the media is, is portraying this is as a, um, it's a, it's a fight over resources. You know, there's limited um, grazing for their cattle. But the middle belt of Nigeria, where we've seen a lot of attacks against Christian communities, is really the, um, the hub of Christian presence in northern Nigeria. So Christians believe that this has been a concerted effort by these Fulani, we call them militants, um, who are trying to uproot these communities and, and, and move them out of the middle belt because that's where the Christian presence is the strongest in the north. The Fulani, you know, not all Fulani are involved in this kind of um, militant attacks. Um, it definitely is in, in, in the middle belt. There There is this problem um, of severe attacks against the church um, and Christians say that the, the group, um, you know, there's evidence that says they have been infiltrated by Boko Haram, they have been infiltrated by mercenaries, foreign mercenaries, um, they're very well armed. Um, 
Yeah, so it's it, it is the church has been facing brutal attack from from this group. The issue for us is is mainly in the Middle Belt, where where there seems to be a concerted effort to remove the church, and and this is what the church has been saying to us. This is what they have been um, facing on a near daily basis. Um, really brutal attacks, and they've been uplifted. They've been, you know, left without homes. Their loved ones have been killed. Um, they're displaced. You know, the economic impact of this is is tremendous on the church. The trauma the church is facing in this is is really horrendous. And is this the biggest problem that Nigeria is facing at the moment? Boko Haram was between 20, 2009 and um, now. It's estimated that they've killed around 35,000 people. But then the Fulani um, violence has really also caused a lot of trouble in the in the last few years. They have surpassed Boko Haram in the attacks. And it's estimated that between January 2016 and October 2018, they killed 3,500 people in a year and a half. You know, and it's it's so difficult to tally the numbers because um, the government never kind of shows the the real death death toll. So it's really hard for us to determine, you know, what the real cost, what the real human cost has been of this violence. Really tragic what's happening to the church there. I feel like every every episode of this podcast, I say, man, I just can't imagine what that would be like. But we really have no comprehension of what people are facing all over the world, not just in Africa, but what persecution looks like and what a violent society looks like. We have um, such privileged lives here in Australia and we really have no idea um, of what it looks like to live um, in such unrest um, politically, but also just in unrest in terms of um, the pressure that people face and the violence that um, people face when it comes to accessing resources and being free to move about in your own society and in your own culture. If I can share um, two testimonies of, of people, you know, I think sometimes we hear the numbers and, and we don't necessarily connect it immediately to people, people who are suffering, people who are impacted by this. Um, let me tell you about Aisha, who was, you know, she's in her 20, late 20 she's the mother of three, and um, two years ago, Fulani militants attacked their village. They took away her husband and 10 of them stayed behind in, in the house. She assumed that they were going to kill her husband. They didn't, thankfully. Um, she found that out later. But while you know they were away, they demanded sex from her. And when she refused, two of the men raped her. And for the past two years, Aisha has been living with this terrible weight um, on her. You know, she, she's told us, you know, that she's experienced the most horrendous aftermath of, of what happened to her. You couldn't sleep, couldn't eat, she didn't feel healthy until we came on the scene. We offered her very small trauma care, but um, we were able to walk with her along the road and she testifies of the difference that's made in her life and how she's shared what she's learned with her other sisters because there are many other Aishas who have gone through the same. I've heard several testimonies of women who have been brutally victimized and, and raped and attacked, physically attacked, injured, um, and there's very little care for them. And then there's, there's a young man called Gyang who just happened to be away from home one night only recently, like August 2018, and they attacked his family and killed his entire family. In one event, they killed six members of his family. One moment he was part of this big family, the next he was 
all by himself and he's dealing with that trauma now he's trying to deal you know to come to terms with this and and open doors is work, walking alongside him you know journeying with him trying to help him where we can kind of helping also he's he's, he's with his uncle now he's being taken care of um, by that family but the immense cost that is for him on the long term can you imagine what he's gone through it's just important for us to remember that those figures those statistics those stories are connected to real people who are just like you and me the same dreams have the same aspirations who want to live in peace who want to live a productive life make a productive contribution to their society so it's really important for us to come alongside them and help them cope with with this trauma yeah and more that them more than them even just sharing the same hopes and dreams we worship the same god absolutely and in many of these cases the difficulties they face is because of their faith in Jesus and we have no idea um sorry I'm, that those stories are really full on um sorry no it's good it's good <laughs> because i think sometimes we get used to it i think it's really easy for us to breeze by the stories that we hear because we can be so desensitized um, by all the stuff that we see on the media and we have you know we have access to stories from all over the world every second of the day so it's so easy for us to keep on scrolling but i think it's so important for us to sit and actually just acknowledge how different life is for other people yeah you know and i i think this is where it gets really kind of tricky because we God has given us this opportunity God has given us you know um we live in in relative safety um we have a lot of privilege and it's not to make us feel guilty about our privilege but to use our privilege as a tool um and it's confronting for me as well you know and and we are often confronted by these very sad stories and the moment you kind of focus it's it's quite costly to stop and focus on the individual cost it can be really difficult to acknowledge those stories but for the sake of those christians we do need to stop and acknowledge them acknowledge their pain acknowledge what they're going through that it's really hard no matter what the narrative is no no matter what the world makes of their suffering we as the body of christ feel their pain it's right that we cry about it it's right that we feel it because we're part of the body this is what we believe we we all part of the same body and you know as as hard as it is and as as much as we want to shield our hearts from some of these stories we really do need to embrace it we really do need to to hear it and acknowledge it and say Aisha I acknowledge your pain Gyeong I really acknowledge your pain I I see what you're going through and I'm walking with you I'm walking side by side with you thanks for for feeling it you know I think that um something that I'm constantly reminded of in the persecuted church is it's it's beauty like it is so beautiful and it's this um incredible collision of absolute tragedy um mixed in with hope for the people in those stories that you just told this isn't the end of the story and there is hope in Jesus and there is hope in heaven and yes our lives look different here but one day we will be all together in heaven i just love that the the story never ends in in desperation and devastation because of Jesus you know and and i think that's one of the most important things that we can learn from the persecuted church that's why we need contact with the persecuted church it's not only a reality check but it's also learning from 
cards working in their lives, it, it amazes me that people don't lose hope in that point. And I don't think it has anything to do with the individual. I think it has everything to do with God and his grace and he's working in people's lives. Even when they, you know, when they speak about it, like Aisha never considered giving up her faith. Gyang is not considering giving up his faith. He's not feeling like, oh, I'm going to leave this God who allows this suffering. He's like... No, God is my only hope. And I think this is what has been the most important thing for me as well in, in this process is to to watch how God is working in their lives and working it out in their lives and giving them grace, sustaining them. He's not leaving them alone. He said, in this world, you'll have a lot of trouble, but take heart, I have overcome. And this is this is the way he's overcome it, is by sustaining their faith, by, you know, it's human effort cannot do that sort of thing. Yeah. It's God's working in people's lives. And, and that's why I love being part of the persecuted church and in this ministry. Can we talk for a little moment about um, women in the persecuted church? Um, you've spoken a little bit about Aisha's story, but how does persecution um, differ for Christian women? Well, unfortunately, I'll have to return to the example of Nigeria, um, where Christian women are under immense pressure. They face a lot of persecution um, in the public sphere, in the private sphere. So one of the phenomenons that we have um, seen over the last few years and learned more about is the fact that a lot of Christian women get kidnapped. So we know about the Chibok girls. We know about Lia Sheribu, who has been an amazing example to young women around the world of, you know, steadfastness in the faith and in the face of great danger, you know, just saying, well, I will not change my faith. I will not be intimidated by this. But there are many other women who have been kidnapped by groups like um, Boko Haram, but also, you know, individual Christians who have been kidnapped, forcefully Islamized, forcefully married off. This is a phenomenon in the north of Nigeria. So they face a lot of danger, like when they go to school, on the way to school, they may be kidnapped, you know, just running errands, just coming back from church. They run this risk of being in certain parts of Nigeria, um, kidnapped by men, taken. And then the church has so um, little power in that in that situation. Many times those girls get returned to their families, but it takes a very long time for it to happen. And by then they are so traumatized and They've been through so much that you know, this is a real big problem um, that we're facing in Nigeria. Then there's also women from um, Muslim background who have come to Christ, who are often punished for that decision by being forcefully married off. A lot of young women would rather leave. They would rather flee. In those societies, it's not like our society where you can go out and find a job and, you know, I'll be fine on my own. They're very dependent on their families to make a living, to survive even. Um, so it's a, it's a radical decision. Once they decide to follow Christ, they have to think about it and say, well, this will probably mean that I can't stay at home anymore. Something that constantly amazes me about the persecuted church is that is that decision. You know, here we make um, a decision to follow Christ without really considering anything else, seeing all the um, blessing and security and um, hope that Jesus brings. And But we don't really understand what the cost is. I honestly don't know if I was faced with the decision of maybe never seeing my family again or having a very strained relationship with them, being beaten, my relationship with my spouse being completely changed, job stability, all of this stuff that we totally take for granted here is completely on the line when you decide to follow Jesus. And to be honest, like, I don't know what my decision would be. Like, that's everything that we hold to such high esteem in our society. Um, and 
and you're choosing to leave it all when you make the decision to follow Jesus. Yeah, and that is something that continually amazes me. I think it's because they experience God. The way he reveals himself to them, the way he, he draws them in is so personal and it's it's so real. And it's, it is really amazing to see how people choose Christ when they know that that would be the result. But again, I think this is the work of Christ. It's, it's not the human. It's not... It, it really is a work of grace in, in people's lives. And that's what makes it so incredibly exciting. If I can share a testimony, there's a lady called Ayan. She's from the Somali ethnic group, lives in the Horn of Africa. And she was a teenager when she became a follower of Christ. She had dreams about Christ and really didn't know what to make of it much until she went to church and then she gave her life to Christ um, in church. And the moment that it became public, her family threw her out. When we met her, she told us that she was so um, distraught by her family's reaction to her. Like the one day she went to her mom and she, she begged her if she could just stay one night in her house, just for one more night so that she could find other accommodation. Her mom said, no, you cannot stay here. Um, you are dead to me. And she even chucked like a cup of tea at her. She, like, she, was, she really treated her so, with so much hostility. And she was really so sad about this situation. She was really broken up about what has happened in, in this family. And it took years and years and years for her. So she went through discipleship. And today she's become one of the pillars of the church, you know, of the Somali church. She writes hymns. She, she's amazing, very strong in the faith. And it took years for her to have, you know, a restored relationship. And I think it was also because her family watched her and saw how she was sustained in faith and how all these difficulties didn't take her away from Christ. She just kept at it. Eventually, when there was persecution that broke out in her area, her, her family actually showed concern. And she says now she, she can visit them regularly. They haven't come to share her faith yet. And despite that cost, she, she was still willing to do it. And it wasn't, it wasn't easy. She cried many, many tears over them, and she felt very lonely. From far away, you think, oh, but God will make it easy for her. No, he will sustain her, but it doesn't mean it's going to be easy. <laughs> so, yeah, it's, it's just encouraging to see, you know, that God did help her. Even though it was hard, she still went through those emotions. It was all good in the end. I think you've already kind of shared a bunch of different lessons that you have learned from your time spent with the persecuted church. But is there something in particular that you wanted to share today that is, you know, um, a standout lesson that the Lord has taught you? I think one of the things that I've learned in, in my interaction with the persecuted church is the fact that God often is most at work in this brokenness. Brokenness is not something that we embrace. Brokenness is not something we welcome into our lives. But in that brokenness, it, it offers a lot of space for God to show himself faithful, to show his character. And as hard as it may be for us to do that, I've seen that in the persecuted church, when they've allowed that, they have gotten to know parts you know, of his character that I can only dream about. I think that's one of the themes that stand out for me is that God's faithfulness in, in that situation, but also how he uses that brokenness to reach others. Off the back of that lesson and all the different lessons that the Lord has taught you and from your time with the persecuted church, is there a message that you would like to tell the Australian and New Zealand church? Yeah, I guess what I would like to say um, to the church in this region is embrace the persecuted church. You know, we need the persecuted church. We need the message of the persecuted church in our own lives. And when you do, I think it'll be such a blessing. You know, you'll learn so much from the persecuted church and you'll get to journey with people who are on the front lines and are sharing the gospel in their setting and sometimes very hostile settings. You know, it's, it's about advancing the gospel in very hostile areas 
barriers and they go into places that we can't go into. So we're partnering with this amazing work. I really want to challenge people to embrace the persecuted church and decide to journey with them. Well, Joe, thank you so much for joining us here today. It was my pleasure. It's been such a privilege to have you with us. And if you wanted to take Joe's advice and to embrace the persecuted church, we would love for you to become a monthly supporter of Open Doors. We have a program called the Frontline Partner Program where you can give any dollar amount and you can choose different regions to support. And Africa is one of those regions. So if that's something that you'd be interested in, you can head to opendoors.org.au or opendoors.org.nz. Thanks so much for listening again and we'll catch you next month.